0: hello
1: and welcome back to the catch today we have the boys back in town and by town i mean three completely different towns and two completely different states and yeah but we have myself michael adams john rahimi and david mccormick all on the podcast today david and john how's it going
2: boys yes it's going so well it's good to be here
0: (laughs) i don't think i can top that but doing well great to see you guys
2: (laughs) some exciting news to share with everyone today. So as you know from last week, I was in quarantine. And just yesterday, I found out that I tested negative for COVID-19. So I'm not actually out of quarantine yet. But in two days, I can break free from this horrid prison and go back into the real world. And it would be quite excellent to be back amongst the folks and the people at the seminary.
1: I don't know, John. I heard it's just a little birdie that no matter what happens after an exposure, you're supposed to be quarantined for 10 days.
2: That is actually wrong. (laughs) I don't know who told you this false information, but according to the the CDC, which is something with C and D and C in it, um, it is seven days if you test negative and have no symptoms, which is what I have. So I'm allowed to leave in just a week's time.
0: Now, what voice are you doing?
2: Yeah, yes, David, it's funny you should ask that. It is the voice that I've come up with in the time that I've been in quarantine, because you see, I have no one to talk to but myself. So it's more interesting to talk to someone who has a different voice than the one that I usually have. So what are you experiencing is a bout of insanity.
1: Um, you know, we know that John has always done really scarily accurate impressions of Schmiegel with the voices and the dual personalities, but it's kind of a little eerie to see it actually come into play with his real life where he started to take on the Schmiegel mindset.
2: Yes, I I feel that some people might have doubted that I talk to myself in strange voices and I'm known to make weird noises at time to time, but this is actually what happens when you're stuck in your room by yourself for an extended period of time.
0: This whole experience has been very off-putting for me. (laughs) (laughs) I, John, I couldn't tell what voice you're doing. And I'm like, is this a voice I should know? No. So that was, okay. Cause I was like, that's why I didn't ask right away. Cause I'm like, I don't want to feel stupid. Um, okay, John. Um, you know, we're always here to talk about it. If, uh, <laughs> if you're hearing those voices again.
2: Yes. You just have to experience uh, today. Listen to the podcast, a, a session of group therapy as they, they helped me work through these various issues that I have in my mental my mental path that you had to deal with isolation. But
0: isolation anyway. <laughs> comes first all. Honestly, it's I new feel because like quarantine honestly made me feel like I was going a little crazy too.
1: Yeah, you get a little quarantine stir crazy in you.
0: Yeah.
1: I understand that. Today, actually, I played Code Names, I believe it's called, for the very first time, which is weird. I understand this. It's been around for many years, but it's the first time I've ever played it. And it was so fun, but also, <laughs> I'm uberly competitive, as both of you know. And so it is an uberly frustrating game for me to play when I'm not the one making the decisions on what cards we should pick. So if somebody chooses it wrong, I'm like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. I, would, I never would have chosen that one. Um, that was an interesting experience. Very humbling, especially when I was like very certain about a couple and then ended up being wrong. I was like, oh, I am sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what would you say is the most um, competitive you've been about something that like you really should not have been competitive about and was like kind of embarrassing. Uh, John, John, I see you nodding.
1: I don't know if John's nodding about an example for himself or an example of me. I'm
2: just interested (laughs) to hear what Michael has to say about this.
1: John thinks I have a competition problem. Um,
0: (laughs) I also have one if that helps.
1: It it does help. The the worst I've ever been though is in high school, my friends and I used to play a lot of board games specifically. We'd play a lot of settlers of Catan and we play a lot of risk as well. Um, There's a couple examples in both of those where it would end up turning into somewhat of a physical altercation between everyone, whether that was verbal or actual physical fighting. Uh, That was probably, probably the most unnecessarily competitive I've ever gotten to the point where you're throwing board and throwing punches at another human being for them taking over South America from you.
0: South America is important in the game though.
1: South America is a kill. (laughs) It's a major key.
0: I had, um, so I babysat over the summer um, and two kids and one of them was five. And uh, she also was a competitive and she loved like playing me in card games and whatnot. So we played a ton of Uno. Um, And like, I would let her win sometimes, keyword sometimes. But like when she would win, she would like get really full of herself and be like, you're really bad at this. Um, so then I would be like, OK, I need to humble her. So I would beat her a couple times straight. So I'd probably beat her three times so every time I let her beat me, which is kind of an embarrassing ratio. Um, but how I would do it, though, because me not being five, um, I could kind of like plan ahead for the game and see like what's going to happen. So I wouldn't like blow her out, I would wait for her to get close and like load up my deck and then do like one sweep. <laughs> like like one like strict motion. And that's how I'd win every time. Just I'd crush all hope. Deck, literally. And then just like it was yeah, not my proudest moment moments, because it happened multiple times. But yes, yeah, so I would I was just she'd see i to have like seven cards and she'd be like I only have three I'm gonna win but like of my seven cards like two of them were wild and like three of them were draw fours <laughs> like two of them were reverses so I could just like yeah definitely not my proudest moment but at the same time I mean my my win to loss ratio was pretty good it's all that matters
2: yes I think uh when I was a a senior in in high school just about to enter into the university I was at a 4th of July party in Virginia where my cousins live, and my cousins are much older than I am, and they have many children. So their children were playing soccer, and I also like to play soccer, or as it's known in the great European place across the pond, football. So as we played football, the little eight-year-old who was running around trying to kick the ball was getting very competitive, and so I naturally got competitive back at him and so shoved him down to get the ball from him. And he complained that it was a foul. And I said, no, it's just because you're small and I'm big that I pushed you down. It was a natural defensive move on my part. Anyways, he began to cry and the parents were not thrilled with my sportsmanship that day. So probably the most competitive I've ever been facing an eight year old in football.
0: The kicker is you have to step over him after you knock him down. Just, just to give him you know, the utter disrespect.
2: I'll be sure to use that next time I'm facing off against a bunch of age olds in football.
0: I mean, you really let him know who's boss with that one. Yes. And I mean, honestly, he'll probably think twice before he ever faces off against you.
2: I will never play him in any sports ever. You David, you have some visitors joining you in the, in the room. <laughs>
0: No, we just have incredibly thin walls. So like anyone three rooms away that talks, you could probably- I
2: feel like that's a natural problem for all of us right now. My walls are incredibly thin. I know Michael's walls are incredibly thin and so are yours.
0: So it's very fun.
2: Yeah, it happens. Speaking of walls
1: and connections between the walls and- (laughs) It's so funny hearing the boys go out and David behind you. But nonetheless, speaking of walls and connections between the two, you could almost say that a door- is like a bridge between rooms, per se, connecting one to the other. And uh, today's podcast, naturally, uh, has a very easy connection to our banter, like always. When we talking about bridges, uh, should have brought in Zach Scurry for this conversation, the bridge expert, a uh, civil engineer, but-
0: That man builds a lot of bridges. That's all he does.
1: Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, we'll try our best without him. Uh, I know we have various levels of degrees here with various different backgrounds, all of us which have zero experience with bridges, but I think we can do this.
2: I once built a bridge out of popsicle sticks at the project, does that count?
1: It does count. It, that's exactly what we're talking about. Fantastic. But this bridge that we're talking about, I know all three of us have actually talked about this very recently within the past three weeks because I sent a very frantic message to John and David at like 9 p.m. one night asking for their opinion and asking if I was speaking in a very uh, blasphemous way, turns out I wasn't, which is exciting. But like, I'm actually going to pass it over to Jonald to open up this bridge discussion and open up this talk.
0: Yes, thank you, Michael.
1: <laughs> which he is not happy done. about quick because w- he did. Quick
0: before better. you start, <laughs> are you going to are you going to commit to the voice the whole time? Just I've been so
2: thinking know. about this for the last five minutes or so. Whether I should or not, and <laughs> okay. I guess we're already kind of in it, so I might as well keep it going. Okay. Um, yeah, so the Bridge. Um, I'm going to open with a quote, actually, uh, from the great novel, uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, by C.S. Lewis. Um, at the end of the novel, uh, Michael shaking his head at me. <laughs> at the end of the novel, we find Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace coming across Aslan in Aslan's country. Now, Aslan has appeared to them as a lamb. And as we might know, the lamb's a symbol for Christ. Um, and so they find Aslan. And Lucy asks, oh, Aslan, now please forgive the voice as we try to talk about it. This is a little girl speaking, not a 24-year-old man faking a British accent. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, will you tell us how to get into your country from our world? Aslan says, I shall be telling you all the time, but I I will not tell you how long or how short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder and so we see this beautiful line from Aslan, as Aslan is the image of Jesus Christ, who is the great bridge builder, who brings us humanity to the Father across the great river. And we can liken the river to sin and death. As we die to ourselves in baptism, we die to sin and death through baptism in Jesus Christ. And as so we are brought to the Father. And so that is how it introduced the topic, Michael.
1: I, I think you kind of... Hit almost everything I wanted to even talk about in the head, and within you know two minutes span. So thank you. Um, <laughs> specifically, the thing that I found interesting, and I know that we've already talked about this as well, is what struck me about this idea of the bridge, which I originally cannot say was anything of my own or of the book that you just referenced. It's actually of Catherine Siena and some of her uh, dialects from the dialogue. Uh, one of the interesting connections I was able to make a couple Sundays ago when we actually celebrated the baptism of Jesus was, again, this idea of the river, in the river of sin and despair and hmm. death. And I remember, John, I texted you guys because I was like, I don't know if this is a stretch to be saying this. I like want to make sure I, like, I'm going to say it to a very small crowd before I ever discuss this with anyone else to make sure I'm not just saying something completely crazy. But I think what we ended up going with was okay with saying that, the Jordan River, which where Jesus was baptized in itself, actually represents that bridge, that death, that sin, and that despair that Jesus Christ came actually to build a bridge from to the Father. And the way that Catherine and Sienna kind of describes this is the road to holiness and the road to the Father. You have to cross this bridge and the bridge being Christ, something that you just ascend through, through these various steps but it oh, it goes over and cascades over a river and that river represents sin, death, and evil. Essentially, it's where you get swept away and just carried down and into despair and separation from Christ. You can't make it to the other side because roaring waves and such. Uh, <laughs> so this idea then kind of led me into the idea of, well, we're looking at this river and we're looking at Jesus's baptism and this connection between that, that river of death that Catherine of Siena discusses with God the Father, and also, the river of which Christ entered to be baptized in.
0: The first place my mind goes um, when you say that is, have you guys ever seen the videos of like during the flash floods and like the car tries to make it across and is like, for the most part submerged and it gets about like three quarters of the way there. And then it's swept away with the water. Mm. That's kind of where my mind went when you mentioned that, like how, yeah, it symbolizes like sin and death that, I feel like sometimes we can uh, we can look at the river and we can be like, yeah, you know, I can cross that. Um, and it's so funny because there are so many of those videos out there and I'm always joking with my dad that like you would think that like people would eventually be like, yeah, no, I'm going to sit this one out. Um, but that's kind of where my mind went to. is like, you know, you don't really understand the power of like the river of like what you're facing and like the seriousness of it um, or that if there is a bridge, like you should use it. Um, but yeah, that's just where my mind went to right away.
1: And I want to go back to that too. Uh, one, I, I'm thinking of the same images and also like the struggle of, I think, living the Christian life of like, we've seen people in our own lives and just knowing it in ourselves, how you, you get to one point like, oh, it feels so good being up here enjoying the view. And then suddenly like you're back in the river, like, wait, what what the heck just happened? Why am I here? Why am I not up there still? Um, but two, I also want to go back to the point I was trying to make about the Jordan River, because honestly, the preparation for this podcast was probably subpar. So I'm now reading the text messages that we shared about two weeks ago. And this was the fruit of my own prayer and the fruit of a, John has them up too. It was the fruit of actually a homily that I heard down here in Dallas, Texas. Um, and they were talking about this idea and the significance of Jesus's baptism. Not only the significance of what his baptism really meant, but really the, the significance of him being baptized in Jordan and why that geographically speaking was important to take note of. Uh, so I wanna actually preface this again with kind of telling that whole story of why it would be important that it is in the Jordan and kind of what it represents. Um, so first I wanna take our minds back to the Israelites um, back in the Old Testament and them actually, <laughs> them actually crossing the Jordan to get to the promised land. So to get to the promised land all of these years they have to cross the Jordan, this giant river but how are they gonna get across? They can't just walk across the river with all of these people, they need a way to get across. And again, uh, likewise to how he had done before, God creates this bridge per se and allows them to cross and opens up the river for them to cross. And they're able to reach the promised land through God's intercession and creating a bridge for them. And I think we can think again as this, Jordan, they're trying to escape sin, escaping evil, escape slavery, all of these things. And now they're back. Now they're back finding that promised land, but there had to be a bridge to actually connect them from that um, captivity to true freedom. And then we look to our own humanity. We look to the sin of which we are captured by and we are enslaved to, and the separation between us and heaven, us and God, that was one created before Christ, but now we sometimes self-create in whatever situations that we do. And this seems necessary that God would also have to create another bridge to bring us into promised land per se of heaven, Uh, which would make sense that Jesus would then send, or that God would then send Jesus to redeem humanity and create this second bridge to connect us to him. And so the way that I'd like to think about it is that Jordan, again, kind of like we said, represents that river of sin that many are swept away in. And it's easy to just be in there and to feel content in there and to be scared to leave the river because it's usually comfortable. Um, But, Christ then actually comes into the river and enters into that sin, enters into that debt, enters into that ugliness of humanity and offers redemption and offers a bridge of escape to get through and cross that river and enter into the promised land of heaven with the Father.
2: Yes, it's quite beautiful, isn't it? I mean, you think about it. Uh, Actually, there's a quote I need to find. So David, you say something intelligent while I go looking for a quote.
0: John, that's really unfortunate because I didn't have—I don't have anything intelligent to say. Um, but Michael, actually, just a little bit of clarity. So, I didn't really understand what you meant by like, the two bridges. Could you go back to that? Uh, the two bridges. So
1: I'm—I'm going I'm to make some assumptions here. The first bridge you're discussing is the bridge from uh, that the Israelites crossed to get to the Promised Land.
0: Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So I'll explain that one first, which is the Israelites are and escaping trying to find trying to reach the promised land all these good things They come to the jordan river which is the only thing separating separating the promised land from them and so they're like okay well how do we get across here what what do we do where do we go how do we we can't get over there like we're just stuck mm-hmm. yeah um, and so god provides this bridge per se by splitting over open the jordan river and allows them to pass through and allows them to cross into the promised land and take refuge there So that's the first bridge. The second bridge, uh, if we're going to compare it to the Jordan River, would be Christ actually coming into the river, which would represent sin and the brokenness of human nature, all of these things. Jesus actually enters into it, offers a bridge out of it and over it to escape that enslavement and that captivity to those things like broken humanity and our sinful nature and offers us a direct path to the promised land of heaven. Um, You can think that, We've said this before that, you know, Christ came to offer a pathway to the Father, a pathway to heaven, open those gates. And so it makes sense and it's necessary that Jesus would come and be the bridge and be the way to that.
0: Yeah, and this could be, no, totally. Yeah, I was was just, yeah, asking for a little clarification. (laughs) Thanks. Um, And this could be a completely, like, um, not uh, accurate parallel, but I, I immediately think of, like, the Israelites in Egypt too that like they were in Egypt and they were enslaved and like death was following them and even though it's not a river, but like there still is like that water that like the Lord helps them through um to pass. Because obviously if they if, if the Red Sea wouldn't have been part, like they all would have died.
2: Apt observation, David.
0: Thank you. I'm really on top of that.
2: Yes. So um I'm building off of that actually, yes, this idea that death is following them. Um there's a quote from St. Irenaeus from his uh, five volume work against heresies. Uh, And here he is speaking of Adam. He says that Adam, however, adopted a dress conformable to his disobedience. Yes, this is from sin. So as Adam sinned, he adopts a dress conformable with his disobedience, which is the fig leaves. And so we see that he tries to cover up his flesh because he is ashamed of it, because it has become sinful indeed. So now we find Christ, come down, taking on human flesh, Michael, as you said. And how beautiful it is that he does this. And he baptizes that flesh. He sanctifies that body and then allows it to die on the cross, right? So as he dies naked on the cross, he is no longer ashamed, covering himself up as Adam was in the garden, ashamed of his disobedience, but he is obedient and naked and offers himself to the father as the bridge and intermediary for humanity to the father to heaven. So just through the cross, what has begun at baptism. And then through the cross and death, it is that way that we are led to the father. Does that make sense? Is that, is yes. That crazy? yes. Okay.
0: No, I know. I'm <laughs> processing that. <laughs> yeah, and, John, and I think, no, go ahead, Michael.
1: Yeah, John, I think that what you said was spot on there. And I think the emphasis to get on the idea of the cross, um, and I actually have a my little, my little portable cross from my, my grandfather here that I s- took off his wall. Mm. Um, just the idea of like a bridge connecting something. I think very, a very easy way to look at it is looking at the cross is a substance, a hard substance, which you can walk upon. You mm. can find strength and you can find confidence that it's not gonna fall out from under you. Um, but it's also one of those things that you look at and it looks big and ugly and does not look <laughs> like it's necessarily the most fun to walk across at the same time. Yeah. There's splinters, there's pains. And on the, on the journey, you have to also encounter and look at the wounds of Christ which mm. we will discuss at a later point in this.
2: Yes. I wanted to bring something up that you said too about uh, when they, they cross over to the promised land and in crossing over to the promised land, it's not like I'm tying this back, but C.S. Lewis alludes to in his, his novel, but it's not that they just hop across the river and then everything's happy, hunky-dory, right? It is then a certain, he says, you know, I, I will not tell you how long or short the way will be only that there is a bridge involved and there's a crossing of the river. He says don't worry because you know once you've crossed me you have confidence in me that this is the right place to go that you've been called to cross the river and this is where a lot of tension often happens in the spiritual life is we forget that we've been called I mean I think of you know in the synoptic gospels Jesus is um, as we alluded to I believe last week uh, in the boat with the apostles he has called them across the sea but oftentimes we forget that we've been called to cross the sea and it's are much easier to say well it's difficult to cross and I don't know it doesn't look like it's my destination was quite right on the other side, so I best turn back until I have a clear sight of what's what I'm going to. Rather, we trust the crisis called us there for a reason, and we continue on in hope and faith.
0: And even if you can't, even like even if you can't see the other side too, mm. what I was thinking of was like you know sometimes for bridges they go. Um, I mean, you have flat bridges, but you know, like some of the bridges that like you know go up and down, and like when you're walking up the bridge, you can't necessarily see the other side. Mm. Um, Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it in that context before that, yeah, we don't know how long the journey is going to be. And yeah, often we do forget that, like, you know, I need to make sure until I need to make sure that that I have everything mapped out perfectly before I can even like start to make this journey. Because if not, it's too tough. It's hard. I don't know exactly where the end is going to be. And then, yeah, we tend to turn back, as you said, or we just jump in the river and then we're like, how to get down here?
1: (laughs) And for myself, I get fixated on the end. Sometimes I'll get fixated on reaching a point, especially in like the spiritual life. Of like you read about saints and you see like really holy friends doing really great things. Like I'll focus and I'll fixate on this level. Well, like, oh, I need to get there. I just need to get there and everything will be perfect and everything will be solved and I won't have to worry anymore. Um, which is probably a lot of the ways that those Israelites were thinking when they were like, oh, once we just reached the promised line, everything's gonna work out. We'll just, everything's gonna be perfect exactly how we planned it to be. But every time I get there, or if I don't get there either way, it's always like, oh wait, there's more. I think that's always an important distinction of the bridge, although there is an end, which is heaven, is an end that we cannot fully reach while in the limits of our humanity right now. And so we can try to reach the end of the bridge as far as we want right now, but at the end of the day, we're never going to be fully satisfied with our progress, and there's always going to be further perfection, further purification that's needed within our own hearts and our own souls. So it's always just an important reminder I
0: always have to keep kind of grounding myself within the spiritual life, too.
2: That's it.
0: Yeah, Michael, and I've noticed that this has been something I've seen over, like, specifically over the past year, but kind of what you were saying that um, we kind of almost want checkpoints, and I've noticed that it's been happening spiritually, but even, even in, like, personal life, too, like, for schoolwork, I've noticed, like, the past few months that I just, like, want to get things done so badly to, like, be done with them, and I really have started to, like, overlook the process, even if it's, like, a dumb paper like I just want to be done with it and I really kind of like overlook like the process of it being done and I've noticed that a lot of times it comes from when we want it to be done we want to be like okay this is over and I can kind of use it to like validate or comfort myself that it's over um instead of the um I guess like some of like the anxiousness or like the unexpectedness of something that's not quite done yet like even today um for teaching I was given I was given a couple tasks to do and they don't have to really be done but my whole thing is like, I want to get them done now. Um, And I've just been thinking of like, um, even before we hopped on, this was like, actually, how about, I feel like my, I've kind of been called a little bit more in prayer to spend some time sitting in things that might not be complete yet and find Christ there instead of the other way around. Like I need to complete these things and then I'll, and then I'll focus on finding Christ. Um, But yeah, that's something I've been kind of focusing on that. Like it's been harder to sit with things when they're undone. And feel like I need to take care of things. I need to reach these checkpoints, or is is saying like the bridge? Like I need to reach these checkpoints before I can like relax, sit back, and kind of like take things in.
1: And, and this is the danger I think of living in like a bullet point oriented culture, which I am obsessed with bullet points. Same. I, when when I go to work every day, I write down the five bullet points of things I want to accomplish for the day, and every time I do it, I, I scratch it out. It's like yeah, got something done, um, which is such a dangerous thing. It's, it can be very helpful in productivity for certain things, but it's very dangerous to actually do it towards spiritual life. Because I do the same thing sometimes where it's like, okay, well, did I did I, did I, I do my rosary today? Yep, check. I'm a success. Did I spend time with the scripture? Check. Yes, okay, I'm a success. Did I spend my 20 minutes with the Lord? Like, check. Yes, I'm a success. But if I don't hit those things, it's like, I'm the worst person ever. Why, why wouldn't I get those things done? And I've also noticed that in my prayer life, my prayer life is far less fruitful when I try to plan everything out to exactly how I want it to be. And it's those times that I usually come in and like, and just like fully release. I'm like, you know what? I have no expectations here. Like, Lord, do whatever you want with this time that I have. And like, I'll, I'll roll with it either way. And those are the times that I actually find to be the mo- most fruitful rather than the times where I'm like, oh, I'm just like, you know, like you said, David, I have all these check boxes I need to click.
2: Yes. I've been described by several people in my formation as a totalist, meaning that, it's the, the progress bar is either at zero, it's at 100%. And if it's not either of those two things, total failure. And so being in quarantine actually has provided a, a kind of a magnifying glass on that issue is because you, know, you plan out your day and you say, I'm going to do all of these things with all the time that I have now, because I don't have other obligations to go to. I say, I'm going to wake up early and pray. And then I wake up and say, eh, and then I roll back over and go back to sleep for another two hours. And it's fantastic. But then I wake up and feel, well, I didn't do all the things that I had written down and said I was going to do. So now I'm a failure. I'm still at this point that I was yesterday, as if, you know, tomorrow is the day. You know, I actually went to sleep last night thinking, what if I died? You know, how would right now, how would I be with God? You know, it's kind of a freaky thought. You're like, oh, crap, kind of screwed. (laughs) So that kind of exacerbates the whole issue of like, I didn't check all the things off the box. But that's not the point of the spiritual life, is it? It is to progress in Christ and to know that he is the one who's actually doing most of the heavy lifting here, not us, which is a very difficult thing to do. Like he's the one building the bridge, not me. But we also get very confused about that as well.
1: Yeah, I was about to say the same thing, John, there, how we get so caught up in making progress for ourselves, as if we can earn any like progression among like the spiritual journey, like we can truly progress along that bridge by ourselves, as if we can add anything to that, but in reality. It's not. I consistently have to remind myself that it's a like gift given, rather than like something I can I can just achieve. And I am the achiever on the Enneagram test or whatever like that. Like I am a three at heart, and I know it. And it is so really frustrating not to be able to control this. Um, But it's something I guess that (laughs) we learn to learn to get along with over the years.
0: Yeah, and it sometimes it calls into, it kind of calls into our heart and our trust in the Lord of being like, Oh man, I'm so anxious. That I didn't get these things done. And I don't know. I, I had a moment of prayer where it's kind of like, well, why do you need to, like, why is, why is your comfort, whether it's spiritual or just other things like productivity, why is your comfort coming from your productivity and not me? And I was like, Oh dang, because like, I guess like for my productivity or spiritual, I can look at them and it's tangible and I can be like, yes, yes, I did a good job with this. Here's our things I did. And I can, I can see it and I can like, I can control that. And instead of, yeah, being, being more open. And I know, Michael, you talked about this a little bit too, but like how often it was like, yeah, I have a plan for this, or even I have have a plan for prayer. It's like, actually, I feel like I, I feel like actually this might be beneficial to spend some time with the Lord thinking about this. And you're like, no, no, but I had a plan. I have to stick to the plan or else, or else it's no good. And this time isn't any good. And I've noticed that's something I've kind of been, Falling into, like I said, both spiritual life and even um, certain things of just like how I'm interacting in daily life. And to be completely honest, like it's hard to get out of that. Or I'm like, yep, I've been more present in the moment today. And then, you know, you jump right back in that river. And Mm. yeah, it's tough.
1: This actually provides a really good segue. I think, David, um, if I I can, John, if you don't mind, with the the idea of the bridge that Catherine and Sienna describes because I literally was just reading something very similar to what you just described there, David, not no less than three or four days ago, about how we will get so caught up in doing the things that we feel is proper, whether that is like reading the Psalms, reading this book, all of these things, and be like if we do that, we're just good. That's all I need to do, and like I'll encounter God, in that, and that that's all. Um, in the dialogues the way it's structured is God the Father talking to Catherine of and, and God the Father is telling Catherine Siena how oftentimes we in this world will be so caught up in reading that and just achieving that and checking that box off that he will communicate to us in those moments and we will say, no, 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 I need to, I need to read this. I, I need to complete this, like, that's what you want me to do. Even though he's calling out, asking to talk to us, asking to allow us to receive him, but we are no we can't we can't make time for that we already have this that we have to do Uh, which is something i I continuously see in my life at times that even just a couple days ago i remember reading and just being like getting distracted by something else i wanted to pray about Be like no i gotta push that out like i just need to complete this reading and immediately being like oh wait a second didn't i just read that that was the wrong thing to do
2: (laughs) (laughs) yes i just i recently picked up a book uh abandonment to divine providence it's by a french priest um and sure yes exactly um and he he talks exactly what you're, what you're saying michael this idea that god's will is precisely like what he has given to us and there's several books that talk about this idea um there's an ignatian spirit to it but uh there's sort of an attachment and control issue that a lot of us have where we can't seem to to deal with it because we are ruled by the ever tyrannical should i should do this i ought to do this this would be better for me to do um so it becomes like i should read rather than rest even though i haven't actually rested in like four days and i'm dying but i should read this thing because that would be good for my spiritual life and it will bolster me and it will make me a holier person because that's this image of holiness that i've crafted for myself not the one that god is presenting to me it is the one that i have made up for the various readings that I've done and looked at saintly people and thought to myself, oh, it'd be nice to be like them because they seem close to God. It's like, well, do you think God wants to be close to you? Most of the time, the answer is no. We're like, I don't think so. He wants to be close to this type of person, so I might as well conform myself to that. Rather, God wants to be close to the unique, unrepeatable instance of his love that is me, that is you know, Michael and, and David and every other person in the world, but oftentimes we don't see it that way facts yes so.
1: um so i think i think a good place to kind of transition into then and um maybe this will be kind of where we where we wrap up too is again i know we're just talking about don't compartmentalize the oh. spiritual life and don't come into it with our own ideas of what we need to achieve but i do think catherine asiana of offers a very nice um distinction between not levels, but stages of this bridge, which they aren't hard stages and they aren't concrete. Like you either know you're there or you're not there. Um, these are very fluid and they work with one another. I think the the first one goes into the second one and the second one goes into the third one and the second one goes into the first one. All of these things, I think they go back and forth. And it's a very fluid uh, relationship between all three, which is why I want to say, not trying to compartmentalize all three, but I think it's easiest just to describe them individually first. And I'm just gonna say first, all three, and we can just kind of go into them however we see fit, but the first stage of this bridge, which uh, she declares that this bridge is, of course, the she doesn't, but God the Father is telling her that this bridge is, of course, Christ, and of course his cross, and it's built on the virtues of Christ. But if you're thinking that we're sending across this, across this bridge, which is Jesus on the cross, what is the first thing we are gonna reach? the, the very first encounter with Christ will be his feet. Uh, that'll be the very first thing that we come into witnessing. And what we will see is the wounds of his feet. And in that, the first stage of the bridge and the first stage of ascending across this bridge is affection for Christ. Just true, pure affection for him and growing in affection and love just for who he is and what he offers us. Because in that one image, we see the gruesome act already against him. That's all we see. We don't even see the full picture. All we can physically see is just the the feet and just the nails in them.
2: Yes, perhaps you would give us all of the stages and then we can comment on on all of them so we don't have time.
1: Great, yes, my computer is dead. <laughs> the second stage then is the pierced side of Jesus, specifically the pierced heart of Jesus. And essentially, the second stage is you reach that pierced heart and you can see into the heart and you can see into the purity of that love and the overwhelming amount of love and mercy that comes out pouring out of that in the third stage would be Jesus's mouth, actually, which would be peace and unity with God. And at first, it really confused me, but now it actually tends to make more sense because we have to think of the words which God used through Jesus, the living word of Jesus, and that is holy divine scripture. That is, I think, in my mind, that is peace in itself. It's the living flesh, it's the living word now. I think it's just a cordon, the peace that came out of that, I'm doing a butchering job of it, but...
2: Mm. Yes, this is a rather beautiful i think um image that comes to mind um i had several beautiful experiences in prayer with the, the feet of jesus the sacred heart of jesus but in particular the um images that come of recurring are the prodigal son and the woman who comes to touch the cloak of Jesus. You imagine her laying on the floor prostrate, trying to touch his, the hem of his garment and you know, almost grasping at, grasping at his feet, trying to touch them. And even the prodigal son as he bows down before the father, you know, scared to even touch the father's feet, his own father's feet, uh, asking for mercy. Um, These are very powerful instances of intimacy and, and forgiveness and um, being brought home, so to speak, drawing, being drawn into that peaceful place um but to michael to to draw it back on something you said earlier was this idea that you know it's a fluid process here we kind of go in and out and this is the gift of god it's not our just i i have made my way to this stage and you have no right to move me from that stage because i have put myself here it's know that god draws me in and out based on you know what is what is proper for my needs at that time and oftentimes i do think of this podcast in that way is that sometimes we're we're speaking in ways that are you know uh, more profound perhaps, or other the times it's kind of like, I don't know what the hell we're talking about, but we're doing something. And we kind of go in and out of that rather. And it's kind of a beautiful thing really.
0: And I think um, one of the temptations that uh, we can have is we yeah, have, when we're at those stages to be like, yes, I'm at this stage, this is mine. Um, and, and, and I think with that to be like, yeah, you know, um, we can be like, yeah, I, like, look at me, I have I have gotten here. And I feel like sometimes in that we don't even focus on what is actually there. Um, and I know that's um can sound a little a little basic, but you sometimes we encounter Christ and then we have that encounter and then maybe like when like those feelings kind of fade away, we're like, All right, on to the next. And kind of kinda of we're saying like it's fluid, but oftentimes sometimes like I feel like he just wants us to stay there and to sit there with him and to really take in whether it's his feet or his heart um, and to not have it be one of those bullet points that we're just checking off. To be like, yep, all right, I'm here. This is awesome, moving on. Um, And to have that trust in him and if that, if that's where he's calling us to, to sit in there and yeah, to not be afraid to follow him even if it doesn't seem like it's the most productive thing.
1: Yeah, the the image of just like sitting, sitting and enjoying the view, just like tasting in the sweetness of that spot no matter which spot it is, it's something that I've never really thought about until you just said that, David. So thank you for that. Um, and kind of probably my, my final point, I think I would say is just trying to again, emphasize the, the lack of compartmentalizing spiritual life and compartmentalizing these stages. And we could always say like, oh, how do you ascend the bridge? And it's like, oh, well, you first grow in affection then you grow in knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. And then you grow in just like complete unity with him. And that's cool but that doesn't really help me personally. How do you truly grow in that? Those are kind of vague to me. So the way that I really just wanna close it out is how do we truly ascend the path of holiness? How do we truly cross this bridge that Christ offers us? Uh, I think it comes down to just perseverance, perseverance in virtue, perseverance in faith, perseverance in prayer. And in that, the journey across that bridge It'll reveal itself, and the Lord will carry us along that, and will pull us through that bridge. It's not something we have to worry about if, if we are doing something wrong within it that we're just never going to get there. The Lord will guide us. Do we just have to persevere? We can't grow frustrated. We can't grow upset when we doesn't when it, the bridge doesn't look the way that we expected
2: it to. Smashing conclusion, Michael! Just absolutely fantastic. That's a beautiful In point. Great way to close that. it out. Snaps all around.
1: Well, boys, is that, is that it?
2: I think, I think we can't do much better than what you just said there, so I think that's a good place to end it.
1: We will end it then.
2: Everyone, thank you, I guys. I concur. Thank you, David. Anytime.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening, as always. We will be praying to you. Please pray for us. Um, yes. Yes, and until next time, we will see you all later. toot <laughs> Adios.